Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This is the John Oakley Show podcast. It is a great day for talk radio. The Thursday edition at the bottom of hour two sees the sound and the Fury panel gathered. And I'm guessing they've done just that. Anthony Fury, Sun Papers National columnist. How you doing? How you hanging in, Anthony? You know, I'm doing pretty well, John, although I was I was just driving from garage to garage. I was not, you know, out and about in society. I was surprised at the number of cars out there. So I guess there's a lot of stuff still happening. Well, I, I'm hoping it's essential service people, but uh, one never knows. Or they're just going for a drive, and that's the way they're isolating, except on the home front, yeah. uh, they're taking it out to the roads, which Maybe. I kind of understand. Yeah, the impulse to go for a drive on a nice sunny day uh, certainly does lurk in all of our hearts. Peter Tabbins is also with us, the NDP's MPP for Toronto Danforth and their energy and climate crisis critic. How about you, Mr. Tabbins? Hey, John, I'm not bad. How are you keeping? Yeah, I'm all right. Uh, right down here in the bunker where we're doing this on a daily basis. But I got to ask you, Peter, because I was just referring to this uh, note here that nearly a third of the 800,000 food services jobs lost in Canada so far due to the coronavirus were lost in Ontario. And I think of the restaurateurs, and uh, I know your neighborhood, which is Toronto Danforth, uh, replete with all kinds of restaurants, and uh, some of whose operators are close friends of mine, great families and all the rest. Uh, How are they going to uh, get over this hump? Any idea? Um, I'll give you a long and short answer. Um, the, the short is, man, governments are going to have to step in and help them. Uh, the longer answer is they are having a very, very tough time, John. I've been talking with uh, the BIAs on the Danforth, uh, down on Queen Street. Um, people laid off a lot of their staff uh, earlier on in March. They've had no money coming in. Uh, People are hurting, and uh, a number of them are now talking to their landlords who are saying, well, pay or I'm going to lock the doors and you're out of here. Uh, I think that's short-sighted on the part of the landlords who do say that. I'm sure there are ones that are more reasonable. Uh, but I think the federal and provincial governments are going to have to step in with cash. It's pretty clear talking to those businesses that they have – used up most of their cash to satisfy payroll and other requirements. They can't pay rent. They don't have money coming in. And if we want them there this fall, if we want them there this summer when we get past the pandemic, uh, we're going to have to invest in them. All right. Well, Anthony, what does that mean? Because, I mean, even if they were to get uh, temporary relief for their employees through uh, whatever the EI facility is, or in the other case, it's the... uh, Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy uh, or the Emergency Response Benefit. I mean, we've got this three-pronged approach that uh, Bill Morneau articulated and the Prime Minister as well. But unless you've got cash flow and customers coming in, once you've given uh, been given the green light to get back up and operating, uh, you're quickly down for the count, aren't you? Yeah, definitely. Bill Morneau said it would probably take until May until those checks actually start coming, the wage subsidy ones. You also have to prove you've got a 30% decrease in revenues, which you know many of these restaurants are going to. But at the same time, this is not 
you know, bigger operations that still have work from home, but they have seen a massive loss in income, they can keep people afloat that way. The restaurant sector and, and other service jobs, I'm not too sure how they do it because cash flow is important, payroll is important. They may have to let people go in the interim, and then the stopgap measure is that those people get the emergency benefit as the monthly payment. I don't know what's in it for the business uh, because, you know, it's not a wage subsidy. Can the owner apply for something? Can they get something to uh, keep the store lights on for a couple months uh, to wait until they return to normal? So there's going to be a lot of falling through the cracks here. Uh, hopefully we can find a way to make things work. Like Peter says, if landlords are being you know, unreasonable, let's try and uh, have some conversations here and, and we can all kind of uh, patch it together. Yeah, I just want to add on to what Anthony was saying. One of the things that we propose from the NDP is a moratorium on evictions, um, uh, a rent supplement uh, to help at least cover some of the cost, um, and I think a recognition, John, that we're going to have to step in to help these businesses and, frankly, in a lot of cases, their landlords survive this, this very tough time so that when we do think we can get back to normal, we can get back to normal quickly. Uh, I, I think the, the EI, the emergency wage program, going to be really critical for those service workers who we don't want to lose. I mean, they have homes. They have to pay their rent. They've got to put food on the table. Uh, we're going to need a very large-scale assistance program to make sure that the, the local economies that you and I are all familiar with um, are preserved and are able to start up again later this year. And that's the thing. I mean, when we're talking about, uh, and a lot of this is, you know, speculative because we don't know how it might play out. Yep. Uh, but, Anthony, you see any blind spots here in uh, what is on offer from Bill Morneau? Because I was just citing before you guys joined us, uh, it was a, I think it was a student who said he was promised a job and was banking on that, and uh, yet there's no revenue that he can display or have any track record of having worked. Uh, so he's going to fall through the cracks, and he's got obligations to meet as well, rent and blah, blah, blah. Then you've got, you know, at the other end, and uh, Peter, you may not be as sympathetic towards those who are making six figures, but if uh, the relief money is 75% of the first 58700 uh, you know, if you're coming in at thirty-five, forty thousand dollars $40,000, that is better than nothing, but it's still uh, a far cry from, I guess, what their standard of living had been. Uh, and the expectation that the company would step in and meet the other 25% may be unrealistic because they, they don't have cash flow or uh, they not may not be bailed out, and uh, whatever it is is still uh, a pittance, comparatively speaking. So, Anthony, do you see these as blind spots in uh, what Morneau has offered here? Do they need to fine-tune it, do a better job, or uh, how do you see it? Well, the government's clearly just throwing everything at the wall to see what sticks, but you also can't blame them because how do you really... Uh, make up for what is essentially the economic collapse and shutdown of society, and and how do you devise one size fits all? Aside from here's you know 100 grand for everyone, uh, how do you do targeted programs? Because you give that great example, the student who's not getting the job, and then the larger example, you know, the person who was making 400k in billable hours. We might not be sympathetic to them, but uh, maybe they just bought a new house at you know the peak of the market, and they just took a mortgage out, and you know it's a crass thing to say, but there are people who, based on the way they've structured things, they need their 200 or 300k or what have you. Should those people lose their property? Uh, you know, because of this as well. I mean, the economy floats a whole bunch of different boats, and they're all going to uh, suffer there, which is why, Peter, I, I think if I, uh, John, if I can just say that 
you know, I'm reading more and more pieces. Der Spiegel is like a kind of the Time magazine of Europe. They're talking about virologists saying we're not so sure how long uh, these social distancing measures actually have benefit, how long we should do them. We've never tried it before in society. Uh, John, I think we're going to see a lot more conversations about Plan B in, in the days ahead. All right. Uh, well, I know in the U.K. and in Holland as well, uh, they went with Plan B initially and then they pivoted away from that. So, uh, again, we may be flailing blindly here and hoping for, a, you know, a positive outcome. Doug Ford was saying at his presser uh, a couple of hours back that there are numbers coming out tomorrow, the modeling numbers, and it's going to be a wake up call uh, that will get everybody's attention. So we're girding for that. Uh Peter, do you see that maybe there's a finite point where people can endure uh, psychologically, emotionally, but uh, economically as well, where we've got to sort of put a timeline on where we get back to normalcy and uh, hopefully, hope for the best? Well, it's going to be tough in whatever direction you pick, John. Um, I'm just going to pick up on you, you were raising this question of people falling through the cracks. Yeah, we have to start thinking about students who were depending on leaving school, starting a job, saving money to go back to school, um, they, their issues haven't been addressed yet, and they're going to have to be. Um, as for social distancing or physical distancing, um, it does appear that, that in, in Italy uh, and in Spain, it actually has had an impact. It, it's actually allowed them to reduce the, the growth of the disease and start to plateau. So I, I think that technically it works. Um, but if you were to choose, choose another option and say, well, look, let's forget about all this. Let's just go back to regular life. Uh, you would have a very large-scale disease transmission. You'd have hospitals flooded with people who are sick or in intensive care. Um, that is not a pretty picture either. There aren't a lot of pretty pictures here. There's a, a, a course we can follow to protect as many people's lives as possible, and I think we have to follow that course. And we're going to have to figure out how we... Um, keep the economy on life support uh, so that when this epidemic, pandemic, ultimately burns itself out, and it will, um, we're able to get our economy rolling again, get people back to work, get them money in their hands so they can pay their, their rents, their mortgages, and put food on the table. And I think that's got to be our focus. And I, when I talk to people, that's what they want our focus to be. Yeah, uh, I think, Anthony, what you're suggesting, though, is uh, an irretrievable structural damage that uh, we can't recover from. Am I right? Well, you know, John, I think one of the challenges at a certain point, you're going to look at all these other societal problems. We know uh, an increase in the unemployment rate brings a certain increase in the suicide rate. That's sort of a, an agreed-upon statistic. I've gotten press releases from child advocacy groups talking about child abuse always goes up during these periods. Uh, uh, mental health crises hotlines have been saying calls are through the roof and so forth. So this is not a crass question. It's a very real question. Could there be more people who are seriously harmed and potentially even lives lost than there would from the virus? Well, not in terms of that extreme number that Peter was talking about there. If we let society uh, go back to normal, but how do we balance that middle? And I think I think data is needed. I think massive widespread testing should be a ramp up. Protect the most vulnerable. Uh, both uh, the, the, in health-wise and economically. And then I, I, I'll tell you, 10 days ago, I had some weird thing where it was like a cold like I've never had before, and I only had it for two days. Did I have this darn thing? I, I don't know, but they're going to turn me away. They're going to say, oh, you sniffled fury? Don't dare ask for a test. I wish I could get one of those quick tests. And then we realized, wow, there's actually tons of people who actually have this thing. They're now immune from it, so we can find ways to reopen society. And I think we have to, uh, we have to explore that.
Well, I think a lot of, I think if we could get mass testing going, that would undoubtedly benefit be beneficial. But I would say, until we're there, I think we've got to be cautious. We've got to protect people's lives. We don't we don't ourselves uh, want to be in intensive care, and we don't want our parents and grandparents there either. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio. 